You are about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on shockwaveskullsessions.com. And now your host, Bob Nalbandian. Shockwave Skull Sessions episode number 79. And boy, do I have a treat for all you guys. For all you Thin Lizzy fans out there, man, this is a uh, historic podcast. We have the incredible, legendary Scott Gorham guitarist for Thin Lizzy and Black Star Writers on this episode, along with comedian Don Jameson. Uh, Don Jameson, also a co-host of That Metal Show. I know you're all familiar with Don. And as third guest, speaking of icons, we got Brian Slagle, CEO of Metal Blade Records. Brian just released a new autobiography book that is actually now available as an audiobook. So uh, definitely check that out. I originally intended this podcast to be a single episode, but apparently on our new podcast network through Anchor, they only allow a certain amount of time. I guess this uh, podcast ended up being two and a half hours as a single episode. So we have to do this as a two-part episode. So on this podcast, podcast number 79, we go through the Thin Lizzy catalog from Nightlife all the way through Johnny the Fox. Of course, Nightlife being the first album that Scott Gorham was involved with. And then on part two, which should be posted uh, in the next couple days, I would assume, we will have that go through Bad Reputation all the way through Live Life. So again, had to make this a two-part episode, but definitely want to listen to both. Part one and part two, some fantastic stories told by Scott Gorham regarding the recording process and some of the live touring in between the albums. Uh, Just such a blast, man. Uh, (laughs) I could go on and on about this, but uh, I do want to get to this since it is a long one. I do want to mention, though, uh, you know, we've had a lot of concerns about the uh, new network that we're involved with, with the Shockwave Skull Sessions. We had to change over from Spreaker to a new company called Anchor. So we switched our podcast network to the uh, CMS Podcast Network, which has been truly fantastic. The CMS Network hosts, of course, the Classic Metal Show with Chris Aiken and Neely, as well as the Shockwave Skull Sessions and our sister podcast that uh, my co-partner Matt is involved with, with Chris Aiken, called Aftershock. So uh, you get three great podcasts with just a single link, and uh, it's made it a lot easier for a lot of people, and it's made it difficult for some that are loading the podcast. I know it's a little bit tricky, and this happened to me on my on my iPhone. I got bombarded with hundreds of podcasts when I downloaded the CMS podcast link, and it actually jammed up my phone, the, the memory on my phone, which uh, created a bit of an issue. So, uh, uh, But you could fix that in the settings of your phone, and you could specifically listen to the Shockwave Skull Sessions episodes. They're all marked as SS on the uh, podcast directory. So if you do have any problems, just let me know. Uh, shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com. That is my main email address. And also don't forget you could download all the podcasts on our official website, shockwaveskullsessions.com. So with that said, man, let's go ahead and start this great podcast, episode number 79, Thin Lizzy, The Complete History with Scott Gorham, Brian Slagle, and Don Jameson. Enjoy. Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast got a 
absolutely fantastic episode, an episode I've been waiting to do for quite some time. We got the one and only Mr. Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy and Black Star Riders on the phone. How are you, Scott? Great, great. It's really good to talk to you guys. We've all known each other for, you know, quite some time, at least most of us. So this is really great to be able to talk to you again. Absolutely. And uh, joining uh, uh, Scott and I on this, we got uh, two great guests, uh, previous uh, Skull Sessions uh, guests. We got uh, Don Jameson returning. Uh, how you doing there, Don? Doing great. And uh, the gigs are starting to come back again on the stand-up scene, but uh, nothing will ever be as cool as uh, going out and do, doing a few minutes before the Black Star Riders and uh, one of my heroes, Scott Gorham. So super oh, happy to be on the, you, uh, the call today. Awesome. We're just talking about that. And I know you did a uh, uh, something with uh, that metal show with uh, Eddie and Jim uh, fairly recently. Are you planning on doing more of these? Well, yeah, we're, we're a stadium act now. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the stadium tour with Motley Crue and uh, Def Leppard might have got canceled, but uh, Jim and Eddie and I play the stadium <laughs> here in New Jersey. And you're headlining. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, for anybody out there, any bookers or agents, just know that, you know, you're going to have to adjust my rate now to uh, stadium pay. <laughs> but you, you I know you do have passes done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the 60 people that showed up at the stadium, they all fit in the suite afterwards. <laughs> great, great. Very cool. And of course, Brian Slagle, CEO of uh, Metal Blade Records. What's going on, Brian? Hey, Matt, I'm uh, very honored to be on this. As Thin Lizzy is one of my favorite all-time bands, and we got to work with them a bit over the years. So uh, truly honored to be here. It's going to be fun. Well, that's why I got the two of you. I know both uh, Brian and Don are huge, huge Thin Lizzy fans, and uh, uh, this is a great podcast because we're going to go through the entire catalog. And Scott is going to oh talk God. about all the great records he performed on. I guess we'll go ahead. Before we get into the nightlife uh, records, Scott, I know uh, this. Uh, a lot of people don't know, at least here in the States, because it was a little bit confusing uh, as far as the imports here in the States, but you had uh, uh, Thin Lizzy had put out three uh, records prior, the uh, self-titled in 71, and then, of course, uh, Shades of a Blue Orphanage in 72, and then a Vagabonds, right. Vagabonds of the Western World in uh, 73. Uh, yeah, that was with uh, Eric Bell on guitar. Right, right. Three yeah, fantastic yeah. albums and uh, kind of unknown here in the U.S., but when you came into the band and uh, uh, recorded Nightlife in 74, talk a little bit about that, because, of course, you, uh, you know, people that don't know, Thin Lizzy, uh, obviously, uh, Phil and Brian Downey, they're from Ireland. You're from, I believe, Glendale. Is that correct, uh, That's California? Right. Glendale, <laughs> California. The Glendale Gunslinger is a rookie word Right, and Brian Robertson from Scotland, so kind of a uh, international band, and I think you guys all uh, congregated in London uh, around that time. Is that correct? That that's right. I mean, yeah, we we flew a lot of flags up on that stage, that Thin Lizzy stage, you know, especially uh, in the beginning. Yeah, when I first came to uh, England or, or London, uh, liter I had literally had never heard uh, of Thin Lizzy. Uh, you know, at this point. When I had arrived, they'd had the uh, the hit whiskey in the jar. It had kind of come and gone, and they didn't really have a big follow up, so, so they weren't uh, really being talked about. So I really had no chance of uh, understanding who this band was or even hearing about them. Uh, so I had, like I said, I had no idea. But uh, you know, I had my own band in London there. The you know the first uh, five months of me being in in uh, England. Now I only had a six month visa. 
And I had 30 more days to go on my visa, and I was out. I had to get back on my plane and go home, right? So I used to get uh, a lot of uh, different musicians, as many as I could, up on that stage with me so I could meet as many uh, English musicians as I possibly could at this at this point. And one of them was uh, an Irish guy. His name was Ruin O'Loughlin. And he knew uh, Phil, and he knew the management, and he also knew that... Uh, uh, these guys were, were looking for another guitar player. And did I want to go out and uh, have a jam with them? <clears throat> now, uh, as I just said, I had 30 more days and it's like, Oh man, yeah, I don't, I don't care who these guys are. I, yeah, definitely. Let's go, let's go have a, a jam with them. So he gave me the manager's number. I got the number, uh, talked to the managers. They said, yeah, you know, you're going to meet a guy named uh, Phil down there. So just remember that meet your guy named Phil. Okay. So it's a, it's a uh, uh, African dinner club that I'm going to, right? I find the <laughs> it's called the Oroco Club, right? And I, I'm walking down this hallway and I see in the distance these uh, black guys in, in really colorful shirts and they're putting out, you know, dishes and silverware and all that. And, uh, and, and, Right at that moment, I hear this this person say, "Are you Scott?" And I said, "Yeah." And, uh, and I said, I'm, "I'm supposed to be meeting a guy named Phil here, and it's this black guy." And he says, "I'm Phil." And I went, "Okay." And he's got this <laughs> Irish accent. Now, now I'm totally confused with what's going on here. Uh, this black guy in an in an African dinner club with an Irish accent. I, I really, honestly, guy, I don't know what's going on. But he's got a big smile on his face. He, you know, throws his hand out to you know to shake, and uh, he made me feel really welcomed. And we walked in, and uh, we started the jam, and that was the that was the very beginning of the whole thing for me. And uh, the reason you came to England wasn't your your brother in law's super tramp, uh, is that correct? That's right, Bob Siebenberg. Uh You know, it's funny. It was my sister because he and I always had this dream of coming to England, where you know, all our big heroes were born and raised and you know, made all their records and hits and all that. And that was our dream was to go, go to England. Uh, but it was my sister who actually made the big step. She was on a school trip uh, to London. And when, when it got time to come home, she stayed there. And we thought, oh, my God, my little sister is the one that's done this. <laughs> it made us all seem less manly because my sister had done it. Right. So. So now we all had to go, but uh, uh, I, I followed on a, you know, I think a couple of years later, they got married, I came over, at least like a couple of people in England, so that made it a little easier for me. So, uh, you know, that's, yeah, that's that's how I actually got to England, was, was my, my little sister. Wow. <laughs> and, and Scott, if, if I recall correctly, in, in your book about Thin Lizzy, uh, I thought you said something that uh, you didn't feel like you played that well on that audition um, uh, and wasn't expecting to get an offer. Well, no, you're you're absolutely right. You know, because I'd never heard any of these guys' songs, uh, didn't even know the name of the band hardly at, at all. Uh, you know, Phil would say to Brian Robertson, "Okay, uh, Brian Sherrill, Scott, the next song that we're we're going to have a blow on here." Okay. So he takes me through the, the you know the chord sequences really quickly, and I he says you got it. I said, well, look, can you run that one by me one more time? And he runs it by me one more time. He says, 
you got it. I said, uh, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> and it was like a one, two, three, four, and we're in it, and my eyes are glued to Robbo's guitar neck. So whatever whatever move he was making to the next chord, I was just a fraction behind him. I said, so I was trying to make it not sound too bad, but you know, I, I, I knew in my heart that I, you know I hadn't done all that well. We, we had done maybe three or four songs in that manner, and I thought, you know, I've just totally blown this. And the reason I was kind of sad about that is because I'm watching each of these guys in the band at their instruments, and I'm going, these guys are great. These are the best guys I've ever played with. And I want in. I really want into this thing, and I've blown it. So I'm packing my stuff up, and uh, Phil says, uh, so do you have a phone number? And I immediately went, oh, okay, well, well maybe I'm kind of in here with a chance, you know. And he rips off <laughs> the tiniest corner of this paper. And I thought, to write my number, I thought, okay, well, he's going to lose that in no time. Flat. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I write the number down, give it to him, and I'm walking out, and that's what Phil said. So what are you doing tomorrow? And that's when I thought, okay, I'm back in with a shot. You know, it's this roller coaster that I'm going on with this whole joining the band, not joining the band. But uh, about 10 o'clock that evening, I uh, I got a call from Phil, and he said, we've, uh, you know, we've just listened to the tapes. And I said, tapes? What tapes? You know? <laughs> <laughs> But they'd secretly been taping the whole thing, right? And they went over to Phil's place, and they listened to the tapes, and they all agreed that uh, I, I'm the, I was the guy. I was the, the piece of the puzzle that was missing. So uh, he asked me to join the band, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't accept quick enough, really. So it was a, that was a great night. All right. Well, should we get into the, uh, the uh, Nightlife record? Uh, 1974, you recorded it. Uh, of course, Ron Nevison produced uh, this record, the uh, fourth in Lizzie album, the first you were included on. Why don't you give us uh, your thoughts about that uh, record, uh, uh, Scott, in the studio and uh, uh, writing uh, well, process? It, uh, yeah. that, that was a really strange album. Uh, not one of my favorites by any means. It was my first album. <clears throat> it was Robbo's first album. So we were as a guitar team, we were still trying to find our way with each other, right? But uh, I knew how we sounded in rehearsal. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of power going on there, a lot of crunch on the guitars, uh, you know, a lot of action going on. But old Ron Nevison kept going, "Ooh, you know, can you just turn it down just a little more?" Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he started again, goes, "Ooh, can you just turn it down a little bit more?" And both Rob and I are looking at each other at, yeah, well, okay. And he kept getting us to turn it down and down and down to where any guitar parts that Brian and I played in rehearsals, you know, it just bore no resemblance to the end product that we came out with uh, on that album. Uh, and I uh, laughingly refer to it as our cocktail hour album, you know, because it was just, it's su such a polite album. Uh, and every all of us were completely disappointed at the end of it. So uh, thank you, Ron Nevison, for that. <laughs> hey, hey, Scott, I've got no problem saying that at all. You know, <laughs> I, I think we all agree. Although it's only money is one of my favorite Tim Lizzie songs, and it's absolutely. Well, you know, but, but 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 that's the thing. You know, there were uh, you know there were like there were some not great tracks on that album, but there were all, there were also some really good tracks that uh, 
just just there's no way it, it could pop through on that album with that kind of production. I have a question. Um, so obviously Phil wrote the lion's share of all the songs, but over mm. the years you contributed quite a few as well. How does that process work? Do you bring something to him? Does he bring something to you? How does it go? Uh, well, in the, in the beginning, you you bring something to the table. Uh, the the very first song I ever wrote was the film was, it was called She Knows, right? Mm. And I had this riff, and we were in the rehearsals, and I'm, I'm just playing this riff, right? And Phil looks up at me, and he says, uh, he says is that your riff? And I, I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, you got any more of that? And I said, yeah, you know, and I, and I show him the, the other bits that I have to it, right? And then he says, do you mind if I, uh, do you mind if I write some lyrics for this? <laughs> uh, oh, hell yeah. You know, come on, right? <laughs> But the, the, cool, the cool thing about that is, you know, this is my very first album that, that I've ever worked on. Uh, it's the very first track that I ever wrote with Phil Linus, and it actually ends up being the opening track on that yeah. very first album. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Really. I, I like that idea. But yeah, I mean, the idea, you know, really, in the beginning, because we were so brand new with each other, you, know, you, you brought your ideas in. You know, later on, you know, years, you know, years later, in albums, you would get together, you know, at uh, Phil's place with acoustic guitars or whatever and start hammering things out, you know, different ideas. But yeah, in the beginning, you, you kind of just brought your own things initially. Don, what was your thoughts uh, on uh, Nightlife? I have a lot. Um, first, the first thing is that uh, the only disappointment on this album for me is is the recorded version of "Still in Love with You" because you know the the, the live and dangerous version is so breathtaking that you know when you listen to the studio version, it, you know it's kind of a letdown. So it, it's dull, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So this, so, but for me, yeah, I think for me, everything else really works. Um, I, you know, I like stuff like Frankie Carroll, you know, just a real dark kind of piano set, you know, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she knows, which you mentioned, Scott is, is a great right. opener to the record. Right. Um, I got a question about Nightlife, the song Nightlife, because you know Willie Nelson sang that same song for years, and he claims he wrote it. So what, what's the truth on that? Hmm. Yeah, fuck Willie Nelson, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's the truth. You know, I, I, I actually really don't know. Because I think at that point I didn't really know a lot about Willie Nelson. Never really, uh, had not listened to Willie Nelson. Although I do think he's a great musician, great guy, you know, all-rounder kind of guy. But, uh, but you did bring up a, you know, a point there, you know, you know, the difference between Still in Love With You on that album and Life in Dangerous, right? And what would happen with this a lot, and I do mean a lot, is a lot of times we had uh, not enough time together to write songs together, right? So, so we would end up writing songs in the studio. And I know a lot of, there's a lot of musicians out there going to throw their hands up in horror at the cost of that, and it is. It's a costly way of doing it, and it's, and it's an in, insufficient way of doing it because... A lot of the songs that we ended up recording uh, a couple of weeks later, you'd go, you know, if I only would have done this, if I only had a half hour more on this, right, this song, right? And so we would ultimately, for the lives that we would change the song ever so slightly, right? Which in the, is in the case of Still in Love With You. 
know, that sound got changed just ever so slightly. Well, in that case, quite a bit, you know. But so so that was like a pattern to through thin lizzie. You know, you record the songs, you're not really happy with it, you know you could have done better, so it will be better when we get it on the stage. Yeah, and the same with Shalala. You know, if I if I had not heard Live and Dangerous prior to listening to this record, because obviously, you know, I was too young, so I, I went backwards, but I would have never said, Oh, that's a concert song. You know, after hearing <laughs> it on the album. But it's right, right live. Um, and uh, it stayed in the set, it seems like, a long time. Well, it did. Uh, and I'm surprised that it did stay in the set for as long as it did. Because you know, basically, it's just a, a vehicle for the drum solo. That's basically all that, that song is. Right? It's, it, was, it was a, a, a feature uh, section to, to let everybody know what Brian Downey could actually do. right? Mm-hmm. And he did it great every night. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what it was. It was, it was a drum solo uh, vehicle, which people really don't do anymore, uh, and they haven't done it in, in quite a long time. But I gotta say, you know, it was a fun song to play on stage. It's, it was power packed. It was, you know, it was it was kind of greasy in its own way, and it slid out there really nicely. So it was a fun song to play. You know, Don, I, I haven't even thought about that song in years. Now. Oh, that's great. So cool. Yeah, it's a heavy song. I mean, it in terms of uh, you know j- musically. Um, and then my last thing, Bob, real quick. Sure, so sure. Nightlife, Nightlife was nicked by Willie Nelson directly then. And then, um, and Dearheart, Dearheart was not, not completely nicked, but just, and you guys can do this after, but Dearheart and Lenny Kravitz, um, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, it's the same song. Right. You guys go listen to it when we're done with Scott. But so there's... You know, for, for an hour. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are, are, you, are you saying we picked it from Lenny Kravitz? The other yeah, way around. Somehow you, you saw him to the future. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think Lenny was even born at that point, you know, so. But that song, but obviously, you know, Len, Lenny was a Thin Lizzy fan because that, they're, they're basically semi, you know, they're kissing cousins for sure. Uh, oh, so, wow. I'll have to go so back for, and listen. For the first Lizzy album with as a four piece, it, it inspired some other musicians. So, um, you know, there you go. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, that's what that's what it's all about, you know, is uh, if you can't go on stage and inspire anybody, you really kind of haven't done your job, you know, because really your job is to inspire the next generation of people coming up so you keep this thing rolling on, uh, you know, to, all of us musicians, we are not out there forever. You know, it, it's all down to the next guys to go up the next rung of the ladder, right? So you need these people in the audience to go, yeah, I want to do that, you know? And if, and if we were in any way, shape, if we did that at all, you know, I, I think we, we did our job. Oh, no, you, uh, you know, dealing with hundreds and hundreds of bands over the years, I can tell you that the most influential band in heavy metal and rock music is Foreign Away Thin Lizzy. And I didn't no, know really? oh, no, I absolutely 100%. I mean, look, Black Sabbath started the whole thing, obviously, so everything comes from there. But I, there's there's very, very few bands on our label, from commercial bands all the way to the most extreme <laughs> death metal stuff. All of them have an affinity for Thin Lizzy. And a lot of these younger kids, I remember, I don't know, five or six years ago, one of our bands 
uh, as I've done, ended up being you know pretty pretty massive. Their guitar players were you know twenty year old kids, and they were fascinated by the seventies rock and metal scene, and they loved. They heard a couple of Thin Lizzy songs, just, just the ones everybody knows. And they said, "Can you make us a compilation of great Thin Lizzy songs?" I said, "Sure." So I did that, and they became massive blowout fans after that. Wow, you know, and that to me, to me, that's uh, that that's success right there. You know, not playing Nancy or any of that, but just to know that you know those kind of things actually happen. You know, when I when I first heard Darren Wharton, the keyboard from keyboard player from Thin Lizzy, he, he says, "Have you heard the Metallica version of uh, Whiskey in the Jar?" And I I had no idea that uh, that the boys had had covered that song. So we were in Spain. We went to a bar. And Darren says, "Hey, do you have uh, the Metallica version of uh, Whiskey in the Jar?" Yeah, yeah, no problem. And he put it on. I was stunned at how how great this song sounded <laughs> because I did not like that song, right? Uh, but when I heard the Metallica version, now I got it. You know, I actually <laughs> like the song, and I actually started to play it the Metallica way. <laughs> hey, are, are you aware that uh, the original Thin Lizzy uh, sign, uh, you know, stage, fan, stage, whatever you call it, sign behind, is in Metallica's rehearsal room in San Francisco? They, they somehow I went, up there, I went up there and saw that, and I said, "Oh my God, is that the real one?" And I was like, "Yep, they, somebody had it. And it was like they stole it from you." And they wow. got it, and it's sitting right now in their rehearsal. Room uh, how, how, how cool is, is that the one that has the blinking lights and all yep, that? Yep, that, yep. Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, we used to have so much trouble with that. Bulbs would be going out, the circuitry would be <laughs> falling apart. I, I imagine the guys that they have on their crew are making this work, uh, you know, pretty sweetly. You know, because <laughs> uh, it, it was like a kind of a delicate sign, yeah. and we 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 kept kind of looking behind us on stage to see if the damn thing was still working. <laughs> yeah, 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 still working. Okay, we're good. You know. That's great. That's great to know that it got a really good home. You know. Yeah, it's amazing. There was there was another. We had another sign, and I, uh, somebody else said it was being stored somewhere, and somebody threw it in a trash can. I mean, this thing was huge, right? And this guy picked it up and called me up and asked me if I wanted to buy it back from him. <laughs> no, I don't think I want to buy my own sign back from him. Should we move on to uh, 75 and in closing? I, 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 you know, Nightlife was one of those albums. I obviously had to go back on. I'm a little bit younger and heard that. Uh, and now it, it, it is an album that just grows on you. I love Sha La La, love It's Only Money, and of course, still in love with you. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. De- definitely not not one of the, the best in Lizzie albums, but uh, uh, no. definitely a great effort. Yeah. Uh, let's go on to Fighting, uh, 1975. Uh, and this album, you kind of really uh, formed that, that dual guitar sound between you and Brian, which really became a uh, identity staple for, you know, everyone talks about Phil's voice, uh, obviously, which was, was a huge uh, uh, identity of, of the Thin Lizzy sound. But uh, that dual mm. guitar uh, sound, you know, again, this is 75. Not many bands had the two guitars, and if they did, they uh, had a, like a rhythm and a lead player, but you really um, yeah. influenced that dual guitar playing. Uh, talk a little bit about that album, Scott. Well, you know, we, well, like I said, we were so disappointed with, uh, you know, Ron Nevison's uh, production of that album that Phil actually said, well, I'm going to produce the next album, right? And I'm like, oh, no, really? Okay. There's going to be tears after this, right? Uh, <laughs> 
it's just it's too much to take on board. You know, you you know, you're writing, you're playing, you're singing, and now you're producing at the same time. You know, but uh, I think that was Kit Wolvern, if I, I want to say, that was uh, engineering on that one. Yeah. No, and it's Keith, Keith Harwood and Jeremy. Keith Harwood. I'm sorry, wow. Keith. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what. And uh, I apologize. And he was the one that was actually in there. You know. EQing and faders up and faders down, uh, kind of thing. And you know, Phil was just saying, you know, give me a little more reverb here, kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, we, yeah, and you're right. We're, we're, this this is the moment when the uh, the uh, harmony guitars, the twin guitar things, kind of came came in on its own, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, we were in a studio at one point, and uh, I. I had played a line. It was either me or Robo, right? We were just playing a single line, right? And the uh, engineer had had this sort of millisecond echo on there that kind of fed back on itself. We went to fed back, it fed back in harmony, right? And the engineer went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and almost simultaneously, me and Phil went, no, 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 God, that, that sounds great, you know? Uh so what we did is uh, I went back out, re- recorded it again. Brian worked out the uh, the harmony and you know went out in the studio and played the harmony to it. We all sat back and went, yeah, you know that's actually really cool. You know it really works there. You know, and I think I said I said yeah, you know I got another line for this song over here. Why don't we try that on that? So it it wasn't this. Uh, thing that was, you know, it wasn't a premeditated thing. This is all, a, 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 you know, happening by accident, and, but it's, it's one of those beautiful accidents that are happening, and we're loving it. Uh, and then it's just, we, we just started adding more and more, and then longer and longer uh, lines to it, and it's, it just became a, a thing after that, that uh, we tried to get as many of these harmony lines as, uh, it, it, as we possibly could. Because we actually really like the sound of it, for no other reason. We we like it. We didn't think of commercial reasons or anything like that. We just liked the sound of this these harmony guitars coming at you. Yeah, you see, that's when I talk about the influence. That's you know one of the main influences the dual guitars. Because really, up before that, all the metal bands just had one guitar player. You know, the only right. other band that had some harmonies is maybe Wishbone Ash and UFO for a minute. But you guys really established that two guitar on stage and in the studio thing and that's really what launched metal because you know pretty much it went from being you know just one guitar player to all of a sudden two and that really established the whole scene from that well and also you know you're thinking of well this could be the second hook of the song yep uh, you've got you've got the vocal hook that Phil's singing and now we've got this you know harmony guitar lines that, that can become the second you know hook which you know, obviously is what happened in the boys are back in town. You got, you know, the, the big chorus line with, you know, Phil singing the boys are back in town. And then you got the, which is the second hook of the song, you know, which I think uh, really kind of drove that song. I, I think if there wasn't that second hook. Who knows what would have happened uh, at that point with that song. But, uh, it's it's always said to have two hooks in one song. I, I know you guys will agree with me on that one. Yeah. 100%. Uh, Don, your thoughts? Well, of course. I mean, if there's any doubt to where Iron Maiden and Judas Priest got their influences for two guitar players, it started on this album. And, uh, you know, produced by Phil. There was uh, controversy about the original cover, which was uh, you guys looking like 
tough guys, and they ended up changing the cover. <laughs> well, you know, that was the whole thing. We, we had a, a whole uh, photo session done. It was supposed to be uh, a picture of us just after a fight, right? And we had a makeup artist, and I thought, great, you know, okay, I want I want me to look like, you know, half my cheek has been ripped up and my nose is broken, right? <laughs> I've got blood all over me. And Phil's going, no, 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 man. we got to make it look like we won the fight. That's <laughs> <laughs> going, really, man? But this will be great. This will be a lot of fun. No, 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 we have to have won the fight. Okay. So, yeah. And, and I, I've actually nominated that album cover for the worst album cover ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh no there, there are many many worse ones I, I, oh, I agree with Brian I loved it because as a kid seeing that cover it's like wow this band is tough look at these guys these guys are badasses okay well alright <laughs> as a kid yeah, that's inspiring I, I think you know top to bottom it's a, it's a great album it, it, yeah, definitely you know weird starting the album with a Bob Seger cover um, but Luckily, it was a you know song that nobody really. I don't even think Bob Seger know, remember doing this song. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, you know what? what yeah, cause the, because we hadn't had a hit at this point, right? And the record company was going, "Well, what about a cover?" Right? Which really, really offended all of us. You know, to to think that uh, you know we've got you know two or three writers in the band, and now they want they want us to do a cover for God's sakes. So Phil says, well, listen, I got one song, and you might think it's a little strange, but, you know, let's have a listen to it. And he plays Bob Seger's version of Rosalie, right? Which is really slow. You know, it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'm thinking, Phil, what are you, what are you doing here? Man? What's, what's the point of this, you know? He goes, no, man, we double it up. We double the, you know, the timing of it up, right? And I thought, yeah, okay, right? And that's what we did, and uh, and, and it's, I thought it actually came out okay. You know, I I think it was kind of a, a kind of a minor hit, Rosalie, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and 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 became a, and it became a live staple as well. Absolutely. And then I well, think that, yeah, live live wise, if you didn't put Rosalie into it, then was sad. Something was wrong. You know, you were you were missing one of the songs, right? So that's. Rosalie is always going to be in the in the religious set, which bleeds into the cowboy song. So it all it all kind of works. All right. Was there anything you wanted to add, uh, Brian, or anyone uh, before we uh, move on? I, you know, I, I, this is, I think, the first Lizzie record that I heard. Uh, it was you know prior to to Jailbreak. I, I heard actually Rosalie on. We had a, a radio station, believe it or not, in 1975 in Los Angeles that played K West, right? K-West, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Kiss, everything. So that's why I first heard in Lee's like, oh, I'm going to go out and buy this record. It, it's wow, so, that, was the, that was the song that hooked you. That was the song, yeah. Because I'd, I'd never heard it before. I, I still to this day love that the version. The live version, of course, is truly amazing. But, but that yeah, I mean, cool. it, that, the live version, it's like it went against a whole other ball game, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. All right. And I, thought Ball- I thought Ballad of a Hard Man was the first the first sort of hint that, uh, you know, Phil was getting into some heavy stuff. And that was your song, right, Scott? Didn't you write yeah, that song? That, that, that was. That was, a, that was a song of mine. I, I really didn't know if this was going to make it on the album or not because it's got some kind of weird timings in it and all that. It's a, 
it's a bit of a, a bit of a strange song. You have to be uh, I don't know what you have to be to to like this this song. But I but like you said, I've got so many people that come up to me and say Ballad of the Heartman. I love Ballad of the Heartman, right? And I thought, well, okay, well that that's that's cool. And it, it's the first time I actually heard Phil kind of stretch out on bass uh, because. Before before that, and all the way through our Lizzie career, I'm always trying to get Phil to do these more complicated bass lines, right? And the, the answer I get every time from Phil is, Scott, I have to sing, I have to be on mic. If I'm doing these complicated bass lines, I won't be able to do anything, right? So what, if Phil was clever, what he would do, he would just hit these one-liners, or just, just laying it down, right? And then as soon as he came off the mic, that's when he could stretch out, you know? And he would... He would stretch out in a, in a really great way. He always told people he was a really crap bass player, but he really wasn't. You know, he was. Uh, I've had guys like Marco Mendoza go, "Oh my God, you hear what he's doing here? This is amazing!" You know, so Phil's mm-hmm. assessment of, of himself was wrong. You know, he, he was actually a good bass player. Absolutely. Yeah, I love Ballad of a Hard Man, uh, and such a heavy song for that time. That was a cool thing about Thin Lizzy, is you could, you know, write kind of, uh, uh, you know, Irish folkish influenced songs to something as heavy as uh, a song that you brought in, Ballad of a Hard Man, to to Suicide, which is a great song, Fighting My Way Back. And of course, Rosalie, you you really made that into your own. I mean, that sounds truly like a a Thin Lizzy song. And something Don and, and Brian mentioned about your influence and about how other people had stole stuff. Silver Dollar, Def Leppard actually uh, speed that up and use it in what is it? Switch Switch sixty two or something? Switch six two six. Yeah, six two six. So oh, wow. you could hear the influence from Def Leppard too. Obviously, yeah. huge fans oh, of yeah. well, that. Yeah, that was uh, Silver Dollar was uh, Brian Robertson's song, right? Brian, Brian didn't really write a whole lot, right? But uh, you know, when he did, he he came up with some some pretty cool stuff. So and uh, Silver Dollar was was one of them. Right I think on. I think also those were were those lyrics if, if I'm not mistaken, right? So and I didn't think Phil liked that very much because he was he was the lyric guy for God's sake. You know, that's my that's my arena. <laughs> right on. All right, well let's move into uh, March of uh, 1976, the big breakthrough album. Fourth in Lizzie Jailbreak. This is when I obviously, uh, like most Americans uh, my age, I think I was around eleven or or twelve, uh, heard uh, the song uh, "Boys Are Back in Town" on the radio and instantly uh, fell in love with Thin Lizzie. Let's get your take, uh, Scott, before we get into uh, uh, our our opinions about it. Your your take on the the writing process, uh, particularly of a uh, 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 "Boys Are Back in Town." Was that uh, kind of an intentional? Uh, you guys were looking to write a hit song, or well, uh, uh, I'm going to have to say absolutely not. You know, mm-hmm. that was a, a song that almost didn't, actually didn't make it onto the album, uh, <laughs> which is kind of strange to think about right now, you know. But uh, we have been, people have kept telling us, you know, if you don't make it on your third album, you guys are finished, you're done, pack your bags, right? Uh, that You know, this, this came from the record company, from the management, and probably some of the fans, you know, that's... If you don't do it this time, you guys are done. So uh, rehearsals now became intensified. Uh, I think we booked out a, a little farmhouse place somewhere here in England for about you know two and a half weeks, and we got our little eight-track TX uh, recording, 
uh, machine, and we sat there for easily 12 hours a day just, you know, bantering ideas left, right, and center, right? And until we came up with 15 songs that we thought, okay, this is going to be a cool album. There's, these are cool songs, you know. Uh, let's bring in the management and see what they think, you know. And, and Chris O'Donnell of the 50% of the management team came in and says, all right, well, let's listen. And we played him all the songs. And uh, his first comment was this song here, the, this, what is it? The, the boys are back in town. You know, there's something about this that I really, now this is pre any guitar harmonies on it at all. Right. We had, Brian and I hadn't, hadn't worked out the harmonies yet. Uh, but there was something about the song, the lyric, the way it was going, the vibe that he really liked. And he said, well, why don't you record this song and maybe take that song out? And we all said, well, all right. Well, at least there's a vote, one vote for that song, absolutely. So we took that one out, put the boys are back in town in, uh, you know, pre no, no harmonies uh, on it. And, and that's when Brian and I really started to, you know, work on this uh, guitar line, right? And one day while we were rehearsing, you know, I heard what uh, Downey was playing. He had this kind of rolling kind of groove that was going uh, through that whole part, which made me feel that this needs a, a rolling guitar part. And that's what I rolled it all. I was, right? And uh, Robertson went, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Let, let me put the, the harmony to it. Uh, he nailed the harmony. And uh, then it was Phil's idea at the end of it to do the big crescendo, you know, to keep bringing this thing up and up and up, right? So this time we all worked on that, that song together. And, uh, and thank, thank God we did, you know. But to us, we didn't, we had no illusions of grandeur about any of the songs being hits. Uh, at all, uh, we we had picked what we thought were going to be hits off the two previous albums, and they just did not happen at all. So we threw up our hands and went, oh, "Well, you don't know, you know, let the record company pick it out." And and of course they didn't. What what happened was there were two guys, two DJs in Louisville, Kentucky, who absolutely fell in love with the boys are back in town. And they were playing it like two, sometimes three times an hour, for God's <laughs> sakes, on their radio show, right? And other radio stations around the region picked up on that, right? Because people were calling in saying, who are these guys? You know, blah, blah, blah. We really love this, right? And they started to put it on their roster. And then, and then the, you know, the, it started to widen and then widen further and to where it got all around, all around the United States, right? So it, now at this point, the record company comes in and goes, well, yeah, you know, it was us that picked that song. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. No, we're going to have to bust you on that one. Right? But, you know, it became a hit, and I remember we were sitting, uh, actually, we didn't, we didn't, the guys, us in the back, we didn't know it was a hit, and we were sitting in the back of this, the dressing room of this club, and what's again, Chris O'Donnell says, it looks like we have a, a hit song on our hands, the guys here in America. And we all went, really? What song? And he went, the boys are back in town. And we thought, okay, well, we better put that one back in the specs. 
Hey, Scott, what song did you omit from that album when you put Boys Are you Back know, in Town? I knew somebody was going to ask me that. <laughs> I, I can't remember. <laughs> Go on. I mean, my memory's not okay. But <laughs> I was just wondering if it appeared on a ladder album or something. I would love to know that one myself. Hey, I became I become really good friends with Earl Slick, the legendary guitar player who played for Bowie and John Lennon yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But I've, so, met, I've met Earl. He's a really cool guy. Oh, he's so great. Such a great guy. But he made a record also in 1976 by an Earl Slick band called Razor Shark, which is one of my all-time favorite obscure records that nobody ever knows about. It's brilliant. But it was produced yeah. by John Alcock, who also produced Jailbreak. So Earl was telling me some incredible John Alcock stories. This guy was completely out of his mind. So I wonder if you have any similar stories that Mr. Slick had. Well, the management, because we were kind of uncontrollable in the studio. We were a bunch of kids, you know, being assholes in the studio, whatever, right? Kind of uncontrollable, as I say. So they, they bring in this guy, John Alcock, who's about six foot six. The guy's huge, right? And and the management wanted this guy, this really posy character, and they to come in and lay down the law to Thin Lizzy about, oh, you got to do this, we're going to do this, and this is where we're going to do it. And after the first day, Phil was like, fuck you, man. This is my band. This is the way we're going to do it. And that was the end of that. And here, John, have a drink, you know. <laughs> <on the set. laughs> but, it, it, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of being funny about this. I mean, he, he did... You know, he was the guy at the controls and, and you know, EQing and faders up, faders down guy. And I think he did a good job for, for what he was uh, uh, handed, you know. But as far as controlling us in the studio, that was just not going to happen, which is a little unfortunate because, you know, when I talked to Joe Elliott from Def Leppard and uh, sort of, who's it, who are their producers? Uh, producer of- Mutt Lang? Mutt Lang, you know, uh, they actually learned so much from Mutt Lang that's, you know, I, I'm actually quite jealous of that. You know, in their early years, they learned so much where we kind of didn't, you know, uh, and I, I wish we had a guy in there that we could actually sit down. What's that do? What does that do? Why are we doing this? What's what's the question here? And those questions, ne- you know, kind of never got asked or, or answered. So, um, uh, I'm a little bit pissed off with myself and ourselves that we, we didn't have a guy in there that, you know, really mentally wanted to teach us this is the way to do things, you know. So, and, and good one for, you know, Joe Elliott and all the guys that were asking those questions. And it really shows, you know, the end product uh, really showed uh, that the, but the, you know, the difference was, we, you know, we had, uh, what, Two months to do our albums. They took four years for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the seventies oh, fuck, fuck you, Joe. No, I'm kidding. I love <laughs> but, hey, you. But Joe know, knows it. Don't take a joke. He's, all those Stephon guys are great guys. But you know, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I, I'm going to take the other approach that if you had a producer come in that could control you, and, and even if they, you know, have, you know, you're lucky, you know, the mutt lines and. The Martin Birches only come along, you know, every once in a while. And but I see a lot of bands kind of get ruined by producers. And I think that you guys make such amazing music, and certainly Jailbreak kind of being that this was the real essence of what Thin Lazy became. And I don't know if you would have had a, a different producer in there. It might not have been the same thing. You guys kind of running the show yourselves. You were able to you know, get your vision, your own out there. 
And you know, something I absolutely take that on board. You know, there, there's always a, an argument for and against. And who knows, you know, what would have happened, either this or that. You know, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It, it might have, you know, it might have ruined us. It might have ruined our whatever creativity we had. It might have stifled us a little bit or, or whatever. I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying that it would have been nice to be able to sit down with a guy who really laid it out. And this is how it works, you know. Became more of a mentor, kind of teacher, kind of character. Sure. Don, you got, uh, I'm well, sure you well, got that, plenty that of comments. That was a conversation stopper, wasn't it? No, we were just being polite, Scott. Um, but I hope <laughs> I don't sleep. I, no, I, absolutely not. I'm actually tallying up uh, for Scott for after this phone call, all the bands that owe him money for um, stealing their songs. <laughs> <laughs> and I've uh, oh, got man. an accountant on retainer for that. So uh, Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll have a separate phone call on that. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What, what can you say about Jailbreak? You know, it's uh, obviously it's considered the classic album by Finn Lizzy. It has their biggest hit on it. And, mm. um, you know, I think... Uh, you know, they got a song like Warrior, which is, uh, you know, definitely seemed like it paid a bit of a tribute to Jimi Hendrix, kind of had that vibe to it. Right. Um, okay. you, you, had, you had the poppiness of uh, Running Back uh, to it, and then you had the heavy songs like like Emerald on there. And, uh, and, but, I, yeah, I think that was it. You know, one of the things maybe about that album that people don't point out is just Brian Downey's drumming. I think it was that was the first time it was just really like wow. I mean, the, the swing on the boys are back in town, and then the heaviness, yeah. like I said, of Emerald, and and then just the kind of the straight, you know, four in the floor beat of you know running back, and so that was sort of the album. I was like, God, this guy's man. He he's one, one of the most underrated drummers in history. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up. You know, Brian really blossomed. Uh, I mean, I already knew how how good. And talented Brian Downey was. I already knew that, you know, but because I, you know, I'm playing with him every single night. You know, I'm on stage with him, watching what he's doing, and, and, and the guy was great. You know, every every single night. But it always takes like one album for to be able to switch people's minds around and make you focus in on one certain musician. That you know, man, this guy really is good. Why haven't I noticed this guy before? You know, and Brian, you know, personally, he's a pretty quiet guy. He doesn't do his own horn at all in any way, shape, or form, right? But he, you know, he, he kind of lets that, uh, he lets his plan do, do, you know, do the talking for him, which is, I think, is a very cool way of doing it. Yeah, or, this is or, a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go well, ahead. I said, this is the first album that you guys used, Jim Fett Factor, to do the cover. I've become slightly friendly with him uh, via social media and whatnot over the years. Super cool guy. I've got a whole bunch of prints that uh, he's done autographs. So how did you guys find him and come across him? Well, Brian Downey? No, Jim Fitzpatrick. Uh, who did oh, Jim Fitzpatrick. He started oh, doing yeah. album covers. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I really spaced out there. Sorry. Sorry. Well, you know, you know, Jim. Jim is extremely Irish. Uh, at this point, he was <laughs> <laughs> he he was pretty well known in Ireland. I mean, he hadn't exploded yet, but uh, uh, he and Phil, uh, you know, were already friends. And I think Phil had been over to his house a couple of times and seen. What what this guy Jim Fitzpatrick could do, you know, and it, it, he he loved the Phil loved the whole sort of historic 
thing that Jim loves to go for, you know, the warriors with the swords and the shields and all that, right? And and it was a perfect fit for, like, say a song like Emeralds, which that's what it's all about, you know, the warriors and, and the swords and the shields coming over the hills, fighting and the whole deal. He, you know, Phil said, listen, we've got this uh, album. It, it's called Jailbreak. And for Phil, this was going to be a... Uh, uh, an album where the whole album told a story and you know th- th- there were overlords and all this and, and he kind of explained the whole thing to, to Jim and, and Jim got it you know he actually understood what Phil was talking about and, and came up with that album cover with the overlord guy there the, I don't know if he's supposed to be alien or what he's supposed to be but it's just that I don't care what he is you know he just he's got this great look on him you know so that's the worst. That's the thing about Jim Fitzpatrick is his his drawings are so strong. You know, they're mm-hmm. uh, you know it's a Jim Fitzpatrick painting or sketch or whatever when you see it. There's there's no doubting it. You know. Yeah, there's no doubt that that uh, jailbreak is an absolute masterpiece, and uh, it's it, for good reason. It really broke Thin Lizzy, not just because of the boys are back in town, but everything you're saying from 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 the lyrics, the con- conceptual stuff, to the musicianship. So underrated, uh, you know. Uh, you and Brian as dual guitar players, and of course, uh, uh, Brian Downey. I mean, you know, very few. I'm, I always mention him and Bill Ward. Just have that that swing that is just so unique. And what I love about Thin Lizzy is that you, as a band, were able to do your own thing, like what Brian says about the production. It is so true. You never had any heavy influence by either the label, management, producer, outside songwriters. Uh, you no. did your own thing you know, up until Thunder and Lightning, and that was so true about the 70s bands, where it seemed like you had a lot more freedom, where 80s, when the 80s started coming around, Say or even late seventies with with the foreigners and all those where it became a little bit more of an AOR kind of thing, but there was no real formula to Thin Lizzy. You did whatever you wanted to doing a, well, a pop songs yeah, to. Yeah. And I, I I always wonder was that to our especially for America was that to our detriment or was that in our favor? Uh, because a lot of these bands that you you know just mentioned you know they they had this kind of formula sound going for them and. Uh, whatever fan you were of whatever particular band, you, you kind of knew what you were going to buy. You knew what you were you were going to get, you know. But with Thin Lizzy, each album was completely different from the last album. Absolutely. And, and we knew this, right? And we, we kind of liked that. It's like, you know, whatever we wrote, uh, we recorded and put it on the album because, you know, we really believed in it. We just, you know, thought it was great. That's a great song. We got to get it on the album. And I always wondered if that was to our uh, detriment in America or not. And and then I, you know, since talked to, you know, American fans and and British and European fans, they go, no, 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 that's that's actually what we liked about you guys because we didn't know what we were going to get. You know? <laughs> I think that gave Thin Lizzy the longevity because Thin Lizzy was always that kind of band you could go back and listen to and hear something different. It, it grows on like first time. I was always, you know, into the heavy song. So I, you know, I didn't care so much for the lighter Thin Lizzy stuff uh, in the beginning, right. but now I could go back and really appreciate it. Whereas the bands that were just the radio hit bands, they never had the real longevity and, and more and more people. I mean, since I think, you know, the nineties have been coming out because then Lizzie was always very underground here in the States uh, up until right. about, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, 
uh, really, uh, you know, everyone we were started, the cult band. Yeah, exactly. But I think more and more people are appreciating, and and that's basically the songwriting and the diversity of the of the songs. Oh, cool. I'm glad. I'm glad you to hear you say that. It's, uh, that that makes me feel feel better about the whole thing. Can I just correct one one thing here? Jim Fitzpatrick. Uh, if we can go back a couple of paragraphs here, he, he was with us right from the beginning. If you remember the Nightlife album cover, yeah, oh, yeah, like right. Jim Fitzpatrick, right? The the only break in it was the Fighting album. Which mm-hmm. who was the one that said they liked the Fighting cover? I I did. <laughs> well, I, well, as a as as a kid, seeing that in the you record want to get store. Security, I throw this bum out. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> to, to to me, I mean, you never that, saw that kind of mean badass look on on an album cover so it was like years later seeing motorhead's ace of spades record you know seeing these three badass guys i kind of looked at fighting as as the same way but that was really that was the break that was a break from jim fitzpatrick and i don't know why we uh broke away from jim fitzpatrick at that point but then the very next album was uh jim fitzpatrick and the one right after uh, after that so johnny the fox Let's get into uh, that. What's that? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, let's get into that album. Uh, and just so people know, this was a uh, Jailbreak was released in March of 76, Johnny the Fox in October of 76. And that was kind of the, the norm back in the 70s. The labels would rush the bands to do two. I mean, this was six months apart, you know, two albums yeah. a year. And I think that was to your detriment. I mean, uh, having where you guys did you feel you were rushed in? The studio by the label because Boys Are Back in Town was such a big hit? Oh, no, we, we were absolutely, because we knew, because uh, now we've got this uh, big international hit in our hands, we knew that we weren't going to get any time mm. to, you know, sit down and, and you know, write more songs. Uh, who, 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 who you guys said, what, what song got bumped because of the Boys Are Back in Town? Oh, I, I asked you that. <laughs> okay, well, it was probably on Johnny the Fox. Okay. That, that song, right? But, uh, yeah, so, so we felt, uh, the management felt that, well, okay, let's get in here, let's, let's do this album. Uh, so now we have, we have uh, you know, two albums that, uh, you know, that we can uh, work on, you know, stage-wise and all that. It just, well, we can just be free and clear and knowing that we can get out and, and do a lot of uh, road work, which we did, you know, a hell of a lot of road work. So I, I think that was the, the reason behind all that you know and, and I'm, I, I'm like you that's crazy because you know the next the very next generation of bands they would do an album and then wait a year you know or 18 months before they before they do their next album and i was really jealous of that right <laughs> Man, you guys get to sit around for 18 months to make your album god damn so I, I, I swore there, it probably shouldn't have sworn. So. Oh, that's okay. That was, we can swear. that was the 70s, though. I mean, that was, you know, Kiss was doing the same thing. Aerosmith was doing the same thing. All these bands were releasing two albums in a year, especially like 76. There was a lot of bands that did that. By the way, this is far and away my favorite Thin Lizzy record. I love every single song on this record. I love it. Well, John, John, John the Fox. Johnny Fox. Far mm-hmm. and away okay. my favorite Thin Lizzy record. I love every wow. song. I love the cover. And I have the weirdest favorite Thin Lizzy song of all time. In fact, this is probably, this is definitely my top five songs ever. It's Fool's Gold. Wow. I don't hear that that often. <laughs> well, no, I, well, you know, and I used to love playing that live on stage. And uh, I think we played it for about, I don't know, maybe six months on stage. 
Uh, I think towards the end, it, it wasn't getting the reaction audience-wise that we wanted. So, and that's how we always gauge uh, a song to, to play on stage. If it's not getting the reaction consistently, well, it's got to go. It's got to make room for you know a song that possibly will get a you know a better reaction. I think that's a kind of an obvious thing for you know all bands that are out on the road. And I think that's what happened to Fool's Gold is we had. It, it was once kind of medium tempo song too many, mm-hmm. uh, so it was going to be you know full gold that was that was going to go. But I, I, I with you, I, you know, I loved that song. I thought it was a really, really cool song, uh, and I can't remember why I loved that song so much. But you know, it, it was it was cool. Yeah, for me, it's just it, it's one of the it's just a perfectly crafted song. It's amazing riffs in there it's super heavy the lyrical content is, is incredible the performance mm. it fills every, just everything about that song is, it's like a perfect song which you don't get very often for me so oh thank you man so it's so, all so, because i think i was crazy for liking it that much it great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I a friend in that. <laughs> yeah I, I lost i lost 50 dollars i think to brian I'm trying to guess his favorite Thin Lizzy song. I would have never thought Fool's Gold. Me neither. Even though I agree, it's it's one of my favorite Thin Lizzy songs as well. And I think the thing I noticed on this record, not that you asked me, Bob, but um, uh, (laughs) I think it was the first time that I really noticed the difference between, you know, just Phil as a rock star and a poet and just a guy who really um, was reaching deep and when you listen to a song like borderline that yeah you know i'm sitting at the bar all on my own just thinking about that girl and me and and i can and i'm there sitting next to phil um right you know in my mind just because of uh because of the you know the music the music and the lyrics and and just the pain of his voice and you know and i would say that about you know von scott same thing but in a different way like when he sings Sin City, you're like you're in Vegas with him with the showgirls and right. rolling the dice and all right. that stuff. And there's there's not there's only a handful of um, lyricists, songwriters, musicians who have ever been able to do that to me. And and I really felt that on this album, especially Borderline, of course. But uh, you know Johnny the Fox. You know yeah, I'm in the back of the black Cadillac. You were you know going down the score. You know, it paints a, a picture in my mind, like a movie plays in my mind when I listen yeah. to one of the songs on this album. Great, you know, and that's what a good uh, lyricist and frontman gives you. You know, he, uh, this, I, I, I say he, he or she, you know, writes these great lyrics, but then vocally they really have to put the emotion in it. If you, these people, you know, you're in the band, but these people who are sitting at that mic, they're your mouthpiece, you know. These are the guys that are, and ladies, men, whatever, you know, these are the guys telling the stories, right? They they are selling the songs, you know. Uh, us guys in the back, we're just kind of, you know, icing on the cake kind of thing. It's, it's those people in the front that are the brave people that are sitting out there in the middle uh, narrating the whole thing. And if, and if they can pull that off, like he did with you, John, I mean, that's, that, then that's a great, that's like a win. You know, straight off the bat. I think that's one of the, the bigger influences and components of him is because I agree with Donald Alvin. I, I personally, and I've said this a, a billion times, is I think Phil Lina is the best lyricist and songwriter ever. And no matter wow. 
what genre of music is it? Because you, like Don said, you feel where he's at, you feel his pain, and he's very honest about a lot of things going on, unfortunately, mm. poor shop stuff. You don't see a lot of that, really a lot of forms of music. I, I think he's absolutely brilliant at all of that. So. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think as a person, that was the way he could actually show his emotion. Uh, Phil was the kind of guy that he could never say sorry. Hey, no, I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry about that. Sorry about he. He wasn't that guy, right? He, but he could do it in the song, right? He could show you the the pain and being sorry in the song. Uh, I remember one, one day we, he and I blew up, we had a huge argument, so I just moved into a new house, and I was still pissed off at him, but he drove over to my house, and in the back of his car were, were two uh, nightstands, and he goes, ah, you know, I, I knew you were moving, I just wanted to give you these things, and he gave me this look, and I went, all right, okay, you're sorry, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to say it, but... Thank you, man. You know, <laughs> but, it, but that's the kind of guy he was. You know, uh, there were certain things about him that uh, if you didn't know him, you know, you, you didn't really understand what was going on inside this guy, right? But as soon as you know him and you understood what was going on there and you saw the signs, then, you know, it was, everything was okay. But uh, I could see where a lot of people go, oh, the kind of a flick, you know? But uh, he, he really wasn't. He, uh, he was actually a really cool, cool guy. All right. Well, yeah, I, I agree with all of you on this. I think uh, uh, Johnny the Fox was such an underrated record here, uh, particularly in the U.S. And I think, uh, again, because it came so soon after uh, a jailbreak, it just flew right by everyone. Uh, and I don't believe there was any yeah. real hits uh, here in America. And you would think after jailbreak, uh, you know, you had so many, you know, Johnny the Fox meets Jimmy the Weed. Such a great song, Massacre, one of my favorite Thin Lizzy songs. Uh, yeah, Johnny, yeah. I mean, so so many good uh, tracks. And lyrically, I, I agree with, with all what you're saying. And I think that was the cool thing that you missed these days. Uh, bands from the 70s, particularly Phil, the way he was able to write about the neighborhood and just about, uh, it, 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 you know, being a kid listening to uh, uh, Johnny the Fox meets Jimmy the Weed or, or any of these songs, it just kind of, it, it takes you into that neighborhood. Whether whether he writes about that or, or a fantasy kind of song, he uh, and you don't hear that anymore. I mean, there were bands, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, a D, uh, you know, Ian Gillen did a lot of that, uh, uh, Nazareth, you know, some of those 70s bands, kind of uh, Phil Mogg, you know, had that, uh, to me as a kid, just hearing, you know, especially coming from in, in L.A., hearing what bands from England and stuff are singing about the neighborhood, and you just kind of had that that toughness about, about Thin Lizzy. Boys are back in town. Johnny the Fox meets Jimmy yeah. the Weed, kind of the underside, dark side. It was. It was telling a story, and it was just so... So cool to uh, just you know listen over and over on the headphones. Well, I also you know Phil wrote a lot about what he knew because <clears throat> Johnny the Fox and Jimmy the Weed, they, these were real guys. I heard that. Yeah, uh, they were Manchester, and I hate to use the this term because I, I've met these guys and they're they're just really great guys. But they were hoods, you know. Right. Uh, they were thieves, you know, and they they were with a uh, a gang. Gang, you know, in in uh, Manchester, and I remember going up to the club one one night, and it was a really cool place, and uh, there was no way they would let anybody, you know, pay for a drink. They had great sense of humor, the whole thing, and you know, I I fell in love with these guys, you know, and, and Phil loved them too, and that's that's why he 
and they came up with the, the song Johnny the Fox meets Jimmy the Weed. So Dylan would ultimately write about it, you know these kind of life experiences, which which I thought was a pretty cool thing, very colorful. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That does end part one of the great Thin Lizzy podcast with Scott Gorham, Brian Slagle, and Don Jameson. Stay tuned for part two. As I mentioned, it should be posted within the next couple of days as episode number 80 on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast, which of course can be downloaded through the CMS Podcast Network. And also you can listen to all episodes at our main website, shockwaveskullsessions.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Subscribe and listen to all episodes by going to our pages on iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, and more. You can listen to all other episodes and access up-to-date information and news on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast by going to our website at www.shockwaveskullsessions.com. Email all comments, questions, and suggestions to shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com.